Hello, and welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ sermon series. Hola, bienvenidos a Harrisburg Hermanos en Cristo, where our vision is to be a thriving, diverse urban church, sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. Here's an example of what you'll hear. If God was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, he's powerful enough to break these chains of addiction on me. He's powerful enough to break the generational curses in my family. He is powerful enough to stop the senseless violence in Harrisburg. I'm telling you this morning the incredible truth that Jesus Christ is crazy about you. Helping each other to experience God's love, God's power, God's healing, helping to change one another's lives. Church can continue to be a place, or church can continue to become a people, my people. Let's pray. And now, here's this week's sermon. I hope that it speaks to your heart. As we continue through the uh, book of John, I'm going to be reading from John chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp and burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish— The very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me, but if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Jesus is defending himself against a horde of prosecuting Pharisees. And so Jesus, uh, before I get into uh, into his defense, let me say why he needed to defend himself. He needed to defend himself because he healed the man by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees considered that work, that he had, he had violated the Torah. And when asked why he violated the Sabbath, Jesus replied, my father is at work on the Sabbath and so am I. In verse 18 of chapter 5, it says, for this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath according to their rules, but he was calling God his father, making himself equal with God. They considered that blasphemy. They considered that a capital crime. And so Jesus listens to them, and his response to these accusations, in essence, was, yes, 
According to you, I am guilty of blasphemy. I am equating myself with God the Father. And then he, in essence, says, get a load of what's coming. You ain't heard nothing yet. Then Jesus goes on to say later after this in chapter 5 that his Father has given him the power and authority to judge all of humanity one day and has given him the power over life and death, and he will exercise that now and in the future. And Jesus concludes by saying that one day he will personally empty every grave on this planet. He said, if you didn't like me healing on the Sabbath, how about that? Oh, and he said, by the way, I don't really care what you guys think anyway. Because I am doing what I am doing for an audience of one, my father. I could care little what you guys think. But he said, if you don't believe me, Jesus, Jesus says, let's do it your way. Let's go, let's go on trial. According to the law of Moses, and that's what Jesus is talking here. If you're going, this sounds a little strange. If you don't know the background and you don't know the law of Moses, this is strange the way he's talking. But what Jesus basically do, does is he sets up a trial. And the Pharisees are the prosecuting attorneys, and he is the defense attorney. And, he, and according to the law of Moses, Jesus could not testify for himself. That was against the law of Moses. According to the law of Moses, he must, his witnesses, there must be two or three other witnesses other than himself. So Jesus, as a defense attorney, says, here we go. Let me produce my own witnesses to defend the words I'm saying. He said, my first witness is John the Baptist. I don't need John's witness to convince myself of what my father has already shown me, he says. But I mention John's witness so that, and I love this, it's easy to miss this. He says, I, witnessed, I, I bear witness to what John said, for you Pharisees, so you Pharisees might be saved. Even in all his arguments and debates and rebukes with the Pharisees, it's important to remember that Jesus loved the Pharisees. He was trying to save them. He was meeting them on their own terms in order to get through to them. Jesus was using whatever method it took to get through and get them on track. And so, for the sake of the Pharisees, he says, let me start with John. You considered John a prophet. You loved his messages calling for repentance. You loved John calling on Israel to get serious and follow Yahweh again. He said, you enjoyed the light he shed, at least for a while. But John's main message, Jesus is telling these Pharisees, was not just to repent and not just to be baptized. John's main message, he says, was about me. It was John who recognized who Jesus really was. It was John who announced Jesus as the predicted Messiah of whom the prophets had written. It was John who declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. It was John who said, although I baptize you in water, there is one coming after me who will baptize you in the Spirit and with fire. And it was John who said, Jesus was the Son of God in a unique way. I heard his daddy call him that when I dumped him in the Jordan River. John was a lamp. John brought light, Jesus said. John was a prophet that you followed. Why aren't you believing all that John said? Because if you believe that John spoke the truth, you wouldn't be trying to kill me right now. And then Jesus brings up his next witness, 
God himself, his Father. Jesus said, the works, the miracles I am doing are my Father, Father's testimony confirming my words. Jesus was telling the Pharisees, the power that flows through me to do miracles comes directly from my Father in heaven. These miracles are my Father's testimony bearing witness to who I am. And he said, this is an even greater witness than that of John. My Father, Jesus said, is my star witness. The four Gospels uh, depict 36 miracles specifically. But these 36 were only a sample, the Gospels indicate, of all the miracles done by Jesus. He changed water into wine. He multiplied bread and fish. He calmed more than one storm. He restored sight to more than one blind man. He healed contagious diseases like leprosy. He caused the lame to walk. He purged demons out of human bodies. He stopped hemorrhaging after 12 years. He raised the dead multiple times. Yet Jesus never did a miracle to draw a crowd. I would have. I, I would have gone, hey, look what I can do. Jesus never did that. In fact, Jesus didn't want the crowd. Because he knew the crowd would consider him the Messiah, the wrong kind of Messiah, and they would have wanted him to do the wrong kind of things. That's why when Jesus healed people, like the, the guy at the pool of Bethesda, he, he, it says he quietly slipped away in the crowd. And there were times he healed people and he said, don't tell anybody what I've just done. Jesus never made a penny off of miracles. He was never showing off for miracles. He never promised miracles so he could get higher ratings on his televangelist program. He only did miracles for three reasons. One was to prove his identity to those who truly needed to know who he was. And that was approximately 70 people. There was the 12, and then there were the 70s he sent out on training missions. He wanted them to know he was the Messiah of God. The second reason he did miracles was because Jesus sometimes just couldn't resist when he saw suffering human beings. When he saw suffering human beings, there's a word that multiple times in the Gospels it says, compassion rose up in him, and he had to help. This word compassion literally comes from the word womb in a woman. Something so deep inside of him moved, it just overwhelmed him, and he had to help hurting people. And the second, the third reason that Jesus did miracles was to show people a glimpse of what was to come one day when the kingdom of God came in its fullness. I love what Philip Yancey wrote in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. It was in Jesus' nature to counteract the effects of the fallen world during his time on earth. As he strode through life, Jesus used supernatural power to set right what was wrong. Every physical healing pointed back to a time in Eden when physical bodies did not go blind, get crippled, or bleed nonstop for 12 years, and also pointed forward to a time of recreation to come. The miracles he did perform, breaking as they did the chains of sickness and death, give us a glimpse of what the world was meant to be and instills a hope that one day God will right its wrongs. To put it mildly, God is no more satisfied with this world than we are. Jesus' miracles offer a hint of what God intends to do about it one day. Hallelujah. 
Some see miracles as an implausible suspension of the laws of the physical universe. As signs, though, they serve just the opposite function. Death, decay, entropy, and destruction are the true suspensions of God's laws. Miracles are the early glimpses of what God is going to do. In the words of Jorgen Moltmann, Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Hallelujah. This world and the mess it's in, this is what's not normal. When heaven looks at us and God looks at us, their jaws drop to the ground and they are astounded at how messed up this world is. We are the ones, miracles are normal. What we have in this world now is not normal. The rest of the universe looks at us that way. No, one day God's light will totally saturate this planet. There will be no more war. They will take their spears and beat them into pruning hooks. The lion will lay with the lamb. The peacemakers, finally, finally, the peacemakers will inherit the earth. Jesus' miracles give us a glimpse on a small scale about what Jesus is going to do to this entire world when he comes back. The hungry and thirsty will be fed physically and spiritually. People will not just be safe, uh, raised from the dead and like Lazarus or the widow of Nain's son, but only to die again. But one day we're going to get resurrected, and we're going to get resurrected bodies that will not decay or rot or age or be limited by the time-space continuum. One of these days when we get a resurrected body, where, where we think we want to go, we can go. We can pass through walls. I cannot wait to play hide-and-seek back in those days. And Jesus will shine in that day. And by the way, so will we, glowing with the glory of God. Jesus never met a disease he could not cure. He never met a demon he could not cast out. He never saw brokenness he could not heal. When Jesus touched a leper, it was not Jesus who got infected with leprosy, but the leper who got infected with health. Hallelujah. When a prostitute washed Jesus' feet, it wasn't Jesus who was defiled, but the prostitute who walked out of the house cleansed and forgiven and transformed. Hallelujah. Jesus was contagious with the love and the holiness and the life of God. And what he was contagious with was stronger than the stuff we're contagious with. Hallelujah. Jesus was telling the world through these miracles that in order to find God's grace and power and salvation, you don't have to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You don't have to kill animals and let them be sacrificed. You do not have to go through religious ritual. You just have to get to Jesus. The works I do, Jesus said, are displays of my Father's power working through me and testifying to the truth about me. That was witness number two in the trial. Witness number three, Jesus indicated, were the scriptures themselves. Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures actually point to me. After the resurrection, Luke tells of two men, two disciples walking on a road to the town of Emmaus. And a stranger joins them. And the stranger begins to teach them, starting with Moses and with all the prophets, how all of this was about him in reality. And it says that Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. I've missed that for years. In all the scriptures. 
Did you notice that John said all the scriptures, Genesis through Malachi, every book in the Old Testament? If you were to ask Jesus what the scriptures were about, he would look at you and say, you are looking at it. You are looking at him. I'm here in the flesh. On every page of scripture, there is some promise, some claim, some symbol, some prophecy, some foreshadowing about Jesus to come. He was foreshadowed in the animal sacrificial system for sins, which was fulfilled when he became sin for us and the final sacrifice for us, and we don't have to make any more forever and ever. He was foreshadowed by the high priest who offered a sacrifice for Israel's atonement once a year. And what was fulfilled is that now he is our great high priest. He stands before the throne of God interceding for us continually. And his atonement is forever. We don't have to go through it over and over again. He was the suffering servant by whose stripes we are healed. He is the one in the beginning who said, let there be light and there was light. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus finishes up with the trial by saying, If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And one day Jesus tells the Pharisees, you will stand before me, but I will not accuse you before the Father. Your accuser will be Moses himself, on whom you have placed your hopes. No other human being ever made such audacious claims as Jesus Christ. I I agree with C.S. Lewis. He was saying, I and the Father are one. I will judge humanity, I will raise the dead, I will give eternal life, on and on he went. You know, you cannot do what liberal scholars have done and water down Jesus into just some good teacher or some prophet walking around. Jesus will not let you do that. He was either the world's biggest liar, or he was crazy, or he was some megalomaniac, or he was who he said he was, but you cannot turn him into Mr. Rogers walking around giving out bread. No, there was something there that cannot be explained away. And the people who knew Jesus personally were absolutely captivated by him and his love. They left their homes and businesses and followed him. Men and women tethered their lives to his life, and they freely died rather than deny him. When they had every earthly thing to gain, they said, no, there's something better than what you're offering When we are reading scripture and listening to the spirit and following Jesus, we are not playing church. We are not playing with religious theories. This, according to Jesus, our relationship with him is what reality is about. This is the meaning of our existence. This is, he is why we were created. He makes all the difference. That was Jesus' claim. In every way, he will make all the difference. Steve Brown wrote that when his brother Ron died, he said, I felt like I could almost die too. My brother was my best friend as well as my brother. And during the time of mourning, I was the rock of the family. It was my role. My brother was a lawyer, the district attorney in our hometown. Our father used to say, I have two sons. One is a lawyer and the other is a preacher. There is no problem I can have that one of my sons can't get me out of. He said, because I was the elder brother and preacher, 
I didn't have the luxury of personal grief until the immediate needs, our mother's grief, the arrangements for the funeral, the ministry to my brother's son and wife were met. The events surrounding my brother's death were bittersweet. The streets of the city where he was district attorney closed the street for the funeral procession and the police officers saluted as the hearse drove by. Dignitaries were there, and there were many tributes to my brother's life and work, but during the whole time, it was important that I be strong. He said, a number of weeks after my brother's death, I flew back to the mountain where he and I lived as children and went to the cemetery to have my own private time of grief. It was raining. It was cold and miserable. And when I got there, I couldn't find his grave. No stone had been placed on his grave, and everything looked so different from the way it had looked the day of the funeral. He said, I remember standing there and weeping and weeping. God, I cried, I can't stand this. This has been the most terrible time of my life. My brother's dead, and now I can't even find his grave. And he said, that was when Jesus showed up. He said, I had this overwhelming sense of peace. God came. He really did. He said it was the difference between night and day. And he said, Jesus spoke into his mind and said, I'm here and you are in the wrong place. You are looking for the living among the dead. Your brother is with me. That doesn't mean the grief wasn't real. He said, I would have given my life if I could have brought Ron back. And I'll never understand why one so young and vital was taken. Maybe someday I'll get the answers to those questions. But he said, when Jesus showed up, it was really okay. God had come. He had given himself. I knew I could trust him with the pain, and he would get me through the pain. It makes all the difference when Jesus shows up. And you know he's shown up. Because he indwells all who call on him now. As John said later, not in this gospel, but in his first epistle, he said, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. I love that what Max Lucado said. He said he not only woos us to himself, he wants us to himself. Aren't you glad that Jesus, not, not, only, he, not only does he save us, and not only will, will he never leave us or forsake us, he inhabits us, he lives in us. You know, Muhammad does not live in Muslims. He never claimed he did, and they certainly wouldn't claim it, but I don't even think Allah does either. Buddha does not inhabit Buddhists, and they never claim that. But Christ dwells in us, hallelujah. A Christian is a person in whom Jesus lives and who transforms us from glory into glory into his image from the inside out. Jesus came for us when we couldn't come to him. He loved us when we didn't even know he existed. He reached out to us when we couldn't reach him in a million years. One day we will stand before the throne of God, and only one question will truly matter. What was your response to Jesus and such love, to Jesus and such sacrifice? What is your response to the truth he brought? What place does he have in your heart? Did you live as if he were alive and alive in you? Did you feel his love? Did you let the Spirit make him real to you? Did you experience his grace firsthand and surrender to it 
It makes all the difference in the world. Jesus has come to us. And he's coming to this world. I'm, you know, I was, you know, one of the things that excites me most is how Jesus is coming to the Muslim world. All over North Africa, there are conversions by the tens of thousands. And in a lot of those conversions, those conversions were precipitated by the the person uh, who got saved later by seeing a dream or a vision of Jesus Christ. And they call him Esau. I was asleep. Esau showed up in a dream and said, I'm the one. I'm the one. Jesus showed up in a vision and said, follow me. Go find somebody who can teach you how to follow me. Jesus is invading with love the Muslim world. Isn't that wonderful? By the way, I remember when Angie, Angie Barnes said to me, you know, she said, one out of three conversions in Turkey are preceded by a vision or a dream of Esau. God is moving. God is here. We praise God for that. It makes all the difference. And before I leave this service today, I, I, I have felt led to do something I don't ordinarily do. But uh, I want to have a prayer. I want to lead a sinner's prayer. And if you believe it and you receive it, I want you to call me after this service is over. Or let me know on your way out. But I want you to hear this and, and listen to this prayer and, and, and open your heart to it. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I have ignored you all my life. And I pray, Lord, that you will forgive me for that. I was made for you. You died for me. I'm loved by you. And I walked away from it. Lord Jesus, come and inhabit me now. Forgive me of my sins. Show me the way. Take me by the hand so that I might follow you the rest of my life. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, please let me know because we want to help you and support you through the process called discipleship. I would like uh, Bart to come and sit. Thank you, Bart. <laughs> and uh, I'd like the intercessors to come forward. And I'd like you to stand. If there's something you need to surrender to Jesus today, I want you to do that. He makes all the difference. He makes all the difference. Life is in his hands not ours. We will pray for you about anything, physical, financial, spiritual up here. We'll pray for you. But if the Spirit is tugging at your heart, listen to Him and do what He says, even if it's just an educated guess. Okay?
the service, but if you want to be prayed for after the service, people will still be in the front praying. Lord Jesus, we bless your name. We thank you. Lord, I am so full. After two services of listening to the way you answered prayer, to hearing the miracles you have performed in people's lives here, or of hearing the way you answered prayer, or you sustained people when there wasn't an obvious answer. I praise you, Jesus. Help us to believe what you said about yourself. Help us, Lord, to trust you the way you trusted your Father. Bring us closer and closer. Lord, thank you. All I can say is thank you for everything you have given us. We are rich. We are rich. And I'm not talking about money. We are rich, Lord in the things that you, in the prayers answered. Help us, Lord, to walk in your spirit with a consciousness of you living in us every moment of every day. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.